it's actually kind of easy to, it's not easy to succeed in business because many people still fail, but it's easy to build a successful business that has a lot of flaws because you can kind of get by with it. But what happens is when the going gets tough, you, your business gets stress test. And if you haven't really built the fundamental unshakable core of your business, then you're going to feel that you're going to feel like you're really on a rocky foundation or your business is just going to crumble. We don't want that. So what I recommend is that you focus on building an unshakable core of your business that's going to thrive no matter what's happening in the economy, no matter whether it's a good economy or a bad economy, boom or bust, that your business is designed to succeed regardless. Welcome to the Simple Brand Podcast, the show dedicated to helping you create simple experiences for your customers and for your team members. Each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with business leaders and authors who will teach you how to differentiate your business with the one thing your customers need the most, simplicity. Your customers live in a complex world. Let's make it simple. Now, here's your host, Matt Lyles. It's hard to believe that the time has flown by so quickly, but I'm right around the two-year mark where I told my work, I told my friends, I told my family that I was going out on my own and creating my own new venture. A lot of people were happy and excited for me. A lot of people were curious, wondering how it might work for me and wondering if they might be able to do the same. But a number of people were actually concerned for me and concerned for my family's financial livelihood and with good reason. You see, entrepreneurs and small business owners may have been the ones who built the world we live in today, but those were the very few who actually made it and succeeded. Unfortunately, most small business stories end with failure. Let's face it, if you're a small business owner, stats are not on your side. 20% of small businesses fail within their first year. 50% of all businesses don't last five years, and only 33% of businesses last 10 years or more. And that's in average economies, without a pandemic. Last year and this year have made small business ownership much, much worse. In 2020, over 100,000 businesses permanently closed. This year, in 2021, Roughly 9 million businesses say they're afraid they won't survive the rest of the year without additional government assistance. So no matter how you look at it, no matter what economy you're in, business ownership is a struggle. Beyond just your expertise, you have to know how and put into place those practices and systems that will not only ensure your business survives, but also ensures it thrives. Because if you're a business owner, I'm sure you didn't create your business just to simply survive. That's why I'm happy to talk with John Meese this week. John's the CEO of Cowork Inc. He's the former dean of Platform University. He's the host of the Thrive School podcast. And he's the author of the recent number one bestseller, Survive and Thrive. How to build a profitable business in any economy, including this one. John and I talk about how the global pandemic affected and continues to affect our economy and small business owners. And we discuss the key plan business owners can use for building or rebuilding a business with legs that'll last for the long haul, even in the next economy impacting event. 
No matter what industry you're in, no matter what size your business is, these are the practices that you need to instill to ensure your business not only survives, but thrives, regardless of the economy. So here it is. Here's my interview with John Meese. Hey, John, how's it going? Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Matt. I'm doing great and I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Survive and thrive. How to build a profitable business in any economy, including this one. Yes. And I have loved the book. And oh, I've thank you. loved all the different stories that you've included in there and all the interviews. Well, thank you so much. I'm glad you said that. And I'm glad you got a chance to come out to the book launch party. That was fun. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. I love Columbia. Yes, it's a uh, it it's become a lovely place uh, to have to call home. Yeah, we were talking about this earlier, and I'm a big Marvel movie fan. And as you should be, I, actually, yeah, absolutely, and so are my sons. <laughs> um, Good. And we talk about Thanos and the snap, and mm-hmm. you relate that to our economy and how we're actually not going to be snapping back to normal, and we'll really never get back to normal. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so I, you know, I think this language probably has died off a little bit. But when I was writing the book, everybody was talking about like, oh yeah, don't worry, you know, there's this economic crisis, but like we're going to snap back, we're going to snap back, and it was I just ironically, you know, right about the same time that we were going through like Avengers, Infinity War, and Endgame, or just recently had gone through those movies where there's this whole snap and then snap back. If you follow the Avengers movie, it's actually. Like eerily similar, actually, when you look at the terminology, because Thanos or Thanos, the bad guy, he a uh, self-righteous bad guy, yeah. to save the world destroys half of it. So he gets these infinity stones and he literally snaps his fingers and it randomly disintegrates 50% of all life in the universe. So quite traumatic, of course. But what's, what I thought was really interesting was that as people were talking about like, oh, don't worry, this economic crisis, this health crisis, whatever, we're going to get through, it, we're going to snap back. There's actually a really great comparison if you just look at what happens in the marvel movies because actually what happens is sure enough in the next movie the superheroes do get together they do get all the infinity stones and they're able to again once again snap their fingers and bring everyone back and it's like hurrah you know therefore like we've just restored 50 percent of the life of the universe which is cool except for the fact the next several movies, like Spider-Man, for example, Far From Home. So the next few movies and TV shows in the Marvel Universe start to explore what happens when the world dramatically shifts. Like, you can't just go back, basically. Because at this point, in their universe, half of all life was gone for what they call the blip, which I think was about five years. And so you can imagine yeah. just people's lives changing. And similarly here, we have our own little, we're our own different blip in the sense that we're never going back to the world before. We never went back to the world before 9-11, right? right. I mean... That moment happened, and we entered into a new world with completely different rules, with completely different consequences. I mean, with where, where even today, no matter if you go to open a bank account, you're going to sign paperwork that says, no, I'm not secretly funding terrorism because of 9-11. You know, when you go to the airport, you're going to see this, these guys in blue and gals from the TSA. But the point is the TSA has become just part of the airport, right? We just assume that's part of the airport, but that actually didn't exist before. There's all these things all around us that are new changes um, that didn't exist before that moment that do now. And so similarly, we've just gone through a world-changing event. Um, We're still in the process of going through it, uh, where the world will never be the same. The COVID-19, God willing, the pandemic will pass. The government restrictions will pass. Uncertainty will change into different types of uncertainty. But we're never going back. We're going forward into a new version of how the world works. And so that's just 
that's something I really just like from the beginning of my book just said like, let's just set the stage by making sure we're on the same page here. Like we're not going back. We're going forward. Even still, a lot of people that recognize that things wouldn't be the same. I've seen people talk about a new normal. And Mm -hmm. I will say for the past 10 years in my career, it hit me whenever any economist or even any business leader, either in my industry or even in my own company, would talk about the new normal, I would shake my head on the inside because I don't think there is anything as normal. I think every year, every couple of years, we're actually always evolving based on whatever's going on right now. So there really is no normal. It's just constant evolution. That's true. But, and I think it's also true that the world is constantly changing and we in humanity and our world, our business world and our personal worlds change, as you said, like every year, every couple of years. But there are these events, you know, like 9-11, like the 2008 crash of the real estate market, like the housing bubble, like, you know, the March 13th, 2020, when COVID-19 was declared a global pandemic and the U.S. declared a national state of emergency. There are these points where we speed up the change. And some of them actually, what actually happens often when it happens is that there were some changes which are going on underneath the surface in the economy, which had been kind of gradually happening that got expedited, such as the shift to remote work. I mean, the shift to remote work had already been happening. We just went overnight to like, oh, everybody's remote. (laughs) So that was a very sudden shift. Yeah. So behind the scenes, there are companies, industries that are trying to push towards evolution. And it seems like a lot of people may be dragging their feet around that. Like you said, Mm -hmm. with remote work, so many companies were dragging their feet saying, we can't do that. We can't operate that way. And then within the span of two weeks, every company said, yeah, we're going remote. And we're we're doing this for an extended period of time. And it worked. Yep, it worked. Well, and it's interesting too, just as a remote work example, that actually offices are are kind of a new concept. Because even with the rise of the Industrial Revolution, there was always an office in a warehouse or a manufacturing facility, but it was like the office was right there next to the operation, where like you can look out there and you can see the machines working, the people working, you've got a couple of people working in the office. But then as our businesses became more and more complicated all over the world, now all of a sudden you have massive buildings filled with people working in an office who've never seen a manufacturing facility that they, for whatever it is that they sell. But that's a new thing, right? So the fact that so many business owners were like, no, we can't do work without this um, was kind of comical because it's actually just such a new invention, the idea of everybody going to an office. Most of the story of humanity has not included that. So Anyways, here we are. Uh, remote work is here to stay. Um, some companies are going to continue to have in-person or hybrid. I'm betting on that one, actually, because I own a co-working space company. But regardless, yeah, I mean, that, that's just one example of the many things that have, that have begun to really shift dramatically that were already shifting slowly behind the scenes. Yeah, you're right. That is just one example. And last year, it felt this way. We thought things were going to be improving this summer. Now things are still a bit uncertain. So it feels like we're still in in a chaotic, volatile period. And it seems like things are going to continue on that trend. So what can business leaders do to recognize our current situation and plan to overcome that? It's a great question. I think the reality is that you know, there's always some sort of challenges in business. It's just a question of, are there global challenges, industry challenges, personal challenges? There's challenges that come from different directions. You know, the first thing I would say is always focus on what you can control, which is yeah. a lot of the stuff, a lot of the areas where people got lost in the last year and a half was focusing on things they couldn't control, just becoming consumed by fear, by 
outrage of all these different things that you can't control. And look, I have opinions. I'm not saying like, don't care. I'm just saying like, you can't spend your energy on those things where you don't really have influence because there's so many areas where you do. And so for business owners specifically, I would say the reality is that in good times, you know, when like the meat's just dripping off the bone and then we've got an economy with this, like money thrown around everywhere, it's actually kind of easy to, it's not easy to succeed in business because many people still fail, right. but it's easy to build a successful business that has a lot of flaws because you can kind of get by with it. But what happens is when the going gets tough, you, your business gets stress test. And if you haven't really built the fundamental unshakable core of your business, then you're going to feel that. You're going to feel like you're really on a rocky foundation or your business is just going to crumble. We don't want that. So what I recommend is that you focus on building an unshakable core of your business that's going to thrive no matter what's happening in the economy, no matter whether it's a good economy or a bad economy, boom or bust, that your business is designed to succeed regardless. And so that's the focus of my book. And I'm happy to share more details of what exactly that means. But that's the first thing I'd recommend is just adopt the mindset of focusing on what you can control and building an unshakable core that doesn't really care, honestly, what the economy is doing. Yeah. And that's one thing that I've been talking to a lot of business owners about lately is sphere of control. Okay. So what are those things that you can control outside of that? What are those things that you might not have as much control, but you've got a little bit of influence maybe around the people around you. And then outside of that, those things that are completely out of your control. And too many people extend their energy in that outer area. And it's to their detriment. It's to their business's detriment. Yeah. And our culture has kind of come to glorify that. I mean, you think about if you watch an hour of the news, I mean, it's a story of a hundred things you can't affect. And it's even things that like, you know, even if you care about them, right? Because as a natural human, when you hear that there was a car accident on the other side of the country and somebody is hospitalized and might die, of course that's tragic. But that's also so beyond your sphere of influence that it, it doesn't, all it does is actually weigh you down because, I mean, the human existence is filled with death and injury. I mean, that's just part of everything, you know, in sickness and, and disease and, and, you know, weather problems and all that kind of stuff. Now, there are some issues that you can have influence on. And so I'm not saying stick your head in the sand, but I do think it's important to realize that for most of the, most of humanity, most of the history of humanity, you and I, Matt, would have no idea what's going on in another country on the other side of the world. So yeah, but let's, let's talk through it. You want to talk through the first section? Absolutely. Because I love the, the real, real, real. Yes. Yes. Um, so the first part, you know, the, the playbook is about crafting your purpose statement in your business. Now you probably heard of like either having a mission statement or a vision statement or a unique value proposition or unique selling proposition. This is kind of similar to those, but I make a very particular emphasis here by saying that you, in your business, you need to answer the question, who are the real people you help? What is the real problem you solve? And what is your real solution? So, I mean, that's good business, honestly. It's built on creating real solutions to real problems for real people. Now, why do I say real three times? Because you pointed that out, Matt. That's because so many business owners forget the human element on the other side of the business. Yeah. If this happens in a lot of different industries with new startup entrepreneurs, but unfortunately, you know, it's got the most expensive mistakes come out of Silicon Valley because you'll get, you know, investors to put half a million dollars or 500 or half a billion dollars into a business that'll start creating a product that no one really needs, right? It doesn't really solve a problem. Uh, one of the tragic examples of this is Juicero. You know, Juicero was a startup. They raised hundreds of millions of dollars. They were 
everyone's excited about this company. They sold this $600 machine that sat on your counter at home in your kitchen, which could give you, uh, make you green, green juice, like green smoothies, uh, in the morning for breakfast, which at face value, you're like, okay. I mean, that's kind of expensive, but that seems like, yeah, maybe I should eat healthier and, you know, drink juice in the morning. And they said, you know, green juice is taken off everyone in the future. Everyone's going to be drinking green juice for breakfast. And so this is just the only way to go. And then you say, okay, well, how does the machine work? And they say, well, rather than actually like chop up and juice all of the vegetables and fruit directly, we sell you these, you know, $15 protein packs. And you take a protein pack and you put it in the machine and the machine squeezes out the protein back into a cup mixed with a little bit of water. And therefore, and then you have your green juice. And then someone, a reporter actually for Bloomberg, then recorded a video where they said, wait a minute, what if I don't have the $600 machine? I could just take this protein pack and squeeze it by hand into a cup and mix it with a little water. And for $15 instead of $600, I have the exact same drink. Yeah. So they had created a product that was so cool, but didn't solve any problems. And sure enough, that company went bankrupt, went into business. Um, and now they have make little toy Juicero machines just to... Uh, they don't, but a different company does just to kind of remember that story. But there's so many stories like that where businesses get focused on saying like we have a thousand customers or a thousand followers or a thousand email subscribers and forget that those are human beings. And so they start focusing on growth hacks and price gimmicks to convince people to buy products or really, they don't even say people, they'll just say to get customers or to get buyers. Mm -hmm. But they forget the fact that there are real people with real problems on the other side of that who really want you to give them a real solution to their real problems they want you to succeed and they have hopes and dreams and aspirations and fears and getting clear on who are the real people you help, what is the real problem you solve and what is your real solution? That's fundamental. If you don't get that clear, nothing else matters. Absolutely right. And when I talk with clients or business leaders and they start talking about users, account holders, yeah. clients, accounts, I, like I will correct them and say, no, say people. Say you people. are talking about people. Who are these people? What are their names? And what are their what are the external challenges that they have to solve? And then based on that, what are their internal struggles that they have as well? And yep. I really preach people empathizing with their customers. And you're only able to do that when you start recognizing them as real people. Yeah, exactly. That's so true. So you want me to walk forward to the next section? Yeah, yeah. So so now that you've got the real people, you look to solve the real problems, right? Yeah. Well, and actually in the book, I go into much more detail on how to pick what the real problem to solve. But the reality is, I think one of the simplest tools to use here is Maslow's hierarchy of marketing. He called it the theory of human motivation. Some people call it the hierarchy of needs, but I call it the hierarchy of marketing. Because once you get clear on someone where they're at, you've got to get clear on, okay, what are they focused on right now? Are they focused on solving their physiological problems like food, water? Are they focused on solving their safety and security needs where they're thinking, focusing on things like having shelter, having an emergency fund, having a stable job or a secure business? Or are they focused on love and belonging, which is where they're thinking, man, I want to spend more time with my family, with my friends and build a really healthy relationship with my spouse. That's the third level. The fourth level in Maslow's hierarchy of marketing is esteem needs or like, you know, do I have the respect to my peers? Do I have the accolades? And am I well-known and respected in my field? And the last is self-actualization. Have I achieved my full potential? Well, this time last year, everybody got knocked into the bottom rung. Everybody in the world was suddenly wondering, how can I stay alive? How can I make sure that I have access to air, to food, to water, to toilet paper, if you may remember 
uh, that being a real problem last oh year. Goodness. Yes. Well, then people started focusing on, okay, am I secure in my job? Do I have money in the bank? You know, started, they started advocating for, you know, a stimulus program to make sure they could pay the bills, all that kind of stuff. Well, I think now there's some people who are still caught in those first two tiers. But there's a lot more people who are now starting to think about love and belonging and saying, you know what, I'm going to quit the stable job because I want to spend more time with my kids. Or, uh, you know what, I'm going to make time to, you know, get out of the house and go spend time with a friend. It's also why some people, uh, a lot of dating apps have declared this the summer of love because they've seen such massive demand. (laughs) So there's that too. You get the idea here. You got to get clear on not what problem you want to solve, but what problem your customers want you to solve. Because if you're selling a nutrition product, if you're selling like a CrossFit program to get people super fit and you're knocking on windows in the line at McDonald's telling people to get out of line and come with you to CrossFit, you're wasting your time. They're not interested in that. They're not interested in solving that problem. They may have a health problem, but that doesn't matter if they're not interested in solving it. So you got to get clear on focusing on real problems and your real solution as a connected to that, that people actually want solutions for. We talk about how things seem so volatile right now and so changing. So what if you're focused on solving real problems? And then what do you do if those problems change? That's a great question. Well, they will change. And honestly, those are the businesses that did the best last year um, were the ones that either accidentally were positioned for, you know, let's just say we're in the hand sanitizing business. Well, it was hard to do wrong last year, actually. But for a lot of other businesses, staying focused on who the real people were, that's the most important part because your real people, their problems are going to change. And then you need to make sure that you adapt accordingly. So if you're focused on serving a target customer, like for example, uh, a lot of restaurants did not do this well, unfortunately. They started saying, come out, support us, come buy from us. But it was really focused on them. A couple doors down from my office is a barbecue restaurant called Puckets. You know Mm -hmm. Puckets. I love Puckets. Um, Well, one of the things they did was at their Nashville location in Tennessee, they recognized that their real people were, you know, were families who wanted to take a break. Well, I mean, at this point, they their families wanted to take a break from cooking because everyone had been stuck at home for so long eating their own cooking. And so Puckett said, well, wait a second, we've got a catering truck, but no one's having events. We're not catering any events right now. This was like during the lockdown. And so they said, well, we'll just bring that catering truck out to uh, neighborhoods where we know some of our customers live and just say, hey, we're going we're gonna to bring an aluminum pan with a dinner for a family of four. Would you like it? And so they just did these deliveries where they would bring their kidding truck out into a neighborhood and just hand out and they would sell these, these you know, family meals. Which if you're a customer who likes buckets, who's already you know, part of that real people group of saying, yeah, I'm tired of eating my own cooking and I'm tired of DoorDash. This is amazing. You know, They're bringing it to me. That's, yeah. a, that's an example of where they stayed focused on the fact that they're real people had changed instead of trying instead of getting obsessed with their real solution, which was serving food at tables with chairs in a restaurant full of other people. Because if they'd stayed focused on that, they would have been disappointed by an empty room. Of course. So it sounds like in this section, if you have to choose one area where it's your primary focus, it's always focusing on the real people that you serve. And if you're focusing on the real people that you serve, then you'll be able to very quickly understand what their current problem is. And based on your capabilities, your skills, whatever else you have, how you can solve their current problem. Exactly. And you have to get clear enough on the real people that it's a people group that you can actually empathize with because you can't really 
like if I mention a category of people, your brain doesn't really trigger empathy. It triggers like categorization. Like for example, if I said, I don't know, Instagram influencers or swimsuit models or NBA basketball players, that's such a broad category that actually your brain doesn't know how to like empathize with those human beings. It just thinks of them as like a category as if they were like a category of items or objects. You have to get specific enough with the real people that there's that your brain can start to tell the story of their life. So for example, you could say, let's just use the NBA, for example, you could say like uh, NBA basketball players that come from, you know, underprivileged homes and have achieved some level of success in their professional career. Okay, well then now what do you know about those people? Well, you know where they came from, you know the, you know, the hard work they had to do to get there. You also know that they're, you can infer then that they're also grateful for everything they achieved and perhaps find out what, what do they want to do? Well, maybe they want to give back. Maybe they want to find out how to manage their, well, a lot of pro athletes actually have a lot of problems managing wealth is a great example of something that most people don't realize because professional athletes earn a massive amount of money. They learn, you know, they earn the equivalent of most people's entire lifetime of income in about five to 10 years. But then if they spend it all, then they're broke for the rest of their life. So if they don't know how to manage money, how do you, you know, that could be, that's an example of a problem that you could choose to solve. That's not the only problem they have, but you want to get clear on the real people. There you go. That should be your focus. Mm -hmm. Did you know that in addition to my podcast and my articles, I speak to audiences all over to help them simplify their customer experience and simplify their employee experience. I've spent the last few years leading a crusade of simplicity across the globe. If you want a winning brand, you have to provide a simple experience to your customers and to your team members. Whether it's a live event or a virtual event, I'd love to partner with you and teach your audience how to do just that. With over a decade in marketing, I know how to hook and captivate an audience. And as a speaker, I know how to connect with that audience. Along with my lessons, I use stories and humor to keep everyone engaged and inspired. Then they leave with the knowledge and next steps to transform their business. As an event planner, you're managing lots of details to give your audience the most memorable event. The last thing you need is a speaker who will make your event memorable for all the wrong reasons. Not only will I leave your audience energized and inspired, I'll make it easy for your team to work with me. Hey, If I've built my brand around simplicity, then you know I'm going to make it simple for you. When you visit mattliles.com slash speaking, you'll find everything you need to know, including details on my topics, promotional materials, and most importantly, a link to connect with my team so we can book your event. So visit mattliles.com slash speaking. I can't wait to help your audience brand out from the crowd. Moving forward or moving downward through your playbook, of course, in order for a business to thrive, they need to be growing. Yes. And so what would you advise business leaders for thinking through models in growing their business? Okay, well, the first thing is sort of a philosophical thing, which is that you need to pick one growth model and hyper-focus on it. A lot of businesses today, because it's exciting, there's a thousand different ways to build a business today. And so because of that, people can get really overwhelmed and end up doing a little bit of TikTok, a little bit of Instagram, a little bit of Facebook, a little bit of YouTube, maybe some Facebook ads. And they're doing so many different things and it's not really getting traction. So the first thing I would say is pick one growth model and focus on it. 
The second thing I would say is recognize that there are actually only five growth models. Now, all the examples I just gave were actually examples of channels where you can grow your business. Right. But there's only five growth models. And I teach these in more detail in my book, but there's a viral growth or word of mouth marketing is another way to think about that, where word about your business, information about your business spreads from one person to the next, whether or not you're in the room. There's paid growth where you pay a certain amount of money and you hope to get more money back. You know, paid growth works when you pay a dollar and you get $2 back. Unfortunately, uh, the average, so Wicked Reports analyzed, they're an analytics company and they analyzed about $6 billion in ad spend and found that the average return on investment for a paid ad campaign is actually negative 50%. In other words, you're paying $20 to make $10, also called a bad deal. Yeah. So paid growth can work, but it's not instant magic. It takes a lot of work to actually optimize it. Then there's sticky growth which is where you create irreplaceable infrastructure in someone's life or their business where they can't, they just can't operate without you. And so they're not likely to leave your business. A great example of that is QuickBooks. They've become the go-to accounting software. And once your business starts using QuickBooks for accounting and you've got payroll in there or invoices or just your tax records, it doesn't matter if someone comes to you and they say, hey, we've got a really great accounting software that's actually better than QuickBooks. You don't care because the cost of switching is so high, you're not going to go. So that's, they have sticky growth. Number four, the growth model number four is search engine optimization, SEO growth, uh, where you focus on getting featured, being sort of like the Wikipedia of your industry and getting featured in search by answering questions that your customers are already asking. And then uh, the fifth is affiliate growth. And affiliate growth is kind of like paid growth, but the difference is you have a, you know, essentially a street team of people promoting your business where when they make a sale, they get a commission. So instead of you paying money up front, you pay money only once they get results. Uh, so there's the five growth models. So pick those. And then underneath those, you need to pick a medium and a channel. So for example, you might pick, okay, I'm going to focus on viral growth. And I recognize that my goal is to create things that are going to spread farther than I can spread them on my own, but without paid advertising. Okay, the medium I'm going to pick is social media. Okay, the channel I'm going to pick is TikTok. Now, why TikTok? Well, because I know that my target customers are on there. That's a key filter. You got to make sure that's why you're picking that channel. But then you can focus on creating, you know, investing in creating content that's primed to be spread from person to person in your target customer base. That doesn't mean it has to go viral and get millions of views. But a, a friend of mine, Timmy Bauer, owns a company called Dinosaur House. And it's a, it's a publishing company that helps authors basically take their books for grownups and turn them into kids' books. Well, their TikTok account is all focused on stories and skits that really are going to resonate with parents of young children because they recognize that's their customer base. And so that's what they're focusing on. Now, as a company grows, does it make sense at all for them to move into more than one growth model or uh, Mm -hmm. more than just one medium and channel? Yeah, it can. So most people feel kind of trapped actually is their first reaction when they hear just one growth model because they're like, but I mean, yeah, I want to do I want to do SEO, but shouldn't I try paid growth too? So what I typically recommend is pick one growth model, your primary growth model where 80% of your time, energy, and money is going to go. Because that's the only way you're going to unlock really true growth is if you double down on that. Now, then you can set aside the other 20% for experimenting with the other growth models. I would say that once you're at a point where you have a full-time marketing team of multiple people and you can dedicate a full-time employee to going out to try a new growth model, then sure, do it. 
But a lot of businesses try to do multiple growth models before they have that team in place. And so they're just stretched too thin. The second thing I would say is that if you want to do this and you want to start branching out, start first by branching out on multiple channels and that like start from the bottom and go up. So start first by branching out on multiple channels. So maybe you find that your content is working really well in TikTok, for example, and then you start repurposing that content for YouTube and it does well there. Okay, great. Well, then you just repurpose into two channels, but you still only have one growth model. Now, then I would say, once you've maxed out the channels, then start branching out on mediums. So that's where you might go, okay, I want to create viral content on social media. I guess I don't know where else you would create viral content, actually. <laughs> well, no, okay, here's another example. So maybe instead you want to focus on uh, creating a word of mouth, a viral word of mouth campaign with your customers where you're sending them something. Your, your medium is, is either email or direct mail. You're sending them some sort of gift that's meant to get them to tell other people about your business. That, or you have a review program to get people to review your business, which again is part of that same growth model. And then once you've maxed out channels and mediums, sure, you can go into a secondary growth model. But I would say that you'll get more bang for your buck if you focus on channels and then expand mediums and then expand growth models. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. You think about it and like, sometimes like I'll think about like, say like a water hose, you know, if you try to expand the space where the water's coming from, it doesn't come out as strong. But when you tighten that hole, like when you focus Mm. like to just like one, I don't know, like narrow hole, it's a lot more powerful when the water comes out. Yeah. I mean, think about this like a, like a magnifying glass. I mean, it's like literally all of the energy to destroy us, to completely melt our bodies is, is shooting down at us every, every minute of every day from the sun. That's um, comforting. Yeah. Thank you. You're <laughs> welcome. But it's, but it's scattered. And so because yeah. it's scattered, we're fine. But if you take a magnifying glass and you run that energy through a magnifying glass that focuses that energy in one place, it'll burn a hole through the floor. And so, or your hand. So don't do that. But I mean, in this case, take that negative energy and apply that to positive energy in your business and say, put the magnifying glass in front of the energy that you have and focus it on somewhere where you can really punch a hole through the ceiling on your growth. That's it. It's all about getting clear and being focused. This part is really interesting to me. On their way to growing their business, a lot of business leaders will want to offer an expansive portfolio of products or services. I'll hear people say they want to access a variety of customers, but you argue against offering so many products. Why is that? Well, for several reasons. The simplest one is just that it confuses people. That The reality is you have to remember that your real people are busy, they're stressed, they're overwhelmed, and they have problems and fears, and they want to know that you can help them, but they've probably been burned before. They've probably either trusted somebody or bought something that didn't really live up to their hopes and dreams. That let them down. Maybe they didn't leave a one-star review, but they still walked away from that going, well, that sucks. And so now you're at this point where the minute they find out about your business, they say, huh, I wonder if they can help me. But it takes a lot for someone to run straight from that to take my money. And so in, the, in, that, in that gap between where they're thinking, I wonder if you can help me solve my problem and where they make a purchase is where you want to remove as many barriers as possible. So if you have 20 products, that's a lot of, it takes a lot of brain space to decide what to get. I mean, classic example of this is, is restaurants, just like we mentioned earlier, actually, is that restaurants are notorious for having these menus with like 20, 30, 40, 50 options on them. 
And if it's a new restaurant you've never been to, especially if you're traveling where you're never going to go to it again. Oh, yeah. I mean, you just stare at that thing for a while going, no matter what I do, it's probably the wrong choice. I mean, like whatever you choose, you're, you're, you're already second guessing it the minute you order it. So I always I've think of Cheesecake Factory. It's a three ring binder menu. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So, you know, I've often said, man, I, I, when I go to a restaurant, I really wish they would just give me a menu that said A, B, and C. And they said, look, they're all good, but here's our, here are three options. And I could say, great, I'm feeling like B today. And it would just take so much brain space away. Yeah. But they've got you captured though. You're, but that's like the example of actually where you're a captive audience though. Because once you're sitting in a chair, the odds that you're going to get up and leave the room are pretty slim. When you're selling your business online or over the phone or on a webinar, you don't have a captive audience. They can open a new tab and exit you real quick. So what I recommend is that you have three products in your business, a gateway product, a continuity product, and a flagship product. Now you can have more products than this, but I've seen businesses have just these three and be successful. A gateway product is you, the purpose of that is it's sort of like the painless purchase. This is a way to get someone to try what you offer, to pay you a little bit of money, and for you to really exceed their expectations, to blow their mind, and to earn their trust. Now, the gateway product, notice I didn't say its, it's goal is to make a bunch of money. It's not. In fact, your gateway product, may you may break even on it, or it may be a loss leader where you're losing money yeah. to sell that product. But the goal here is just to earn someone's trust. So depending upon your target customer and what their demographics are, what their income is, that price might be completely different. But in a lot of businesses, the gateway product is going to be you know, $1 or $5 or $10, maybe $100, depending upon your customer. Could be more than that, I suppose, if you're dealing with a wealthy customer base. But the goal here is that it needs to be a number that feels like a painless purchase to your customer. Now, as soon as they buy that gateway product, your job is then to really just exceed their expectations with that. And so they want to come back for more. Now, your flagship product isn't on the other end of the spectrum. Your flagship product is probably the most expensive thing you offer. And it's the epitome of total transformation in your business or your brand. So this is if somebody wants to go all in. They want the full transformation. They want to give you as much money as they can because they believe that whatever they give you, it's going to be worth it what they get in return. That's your flagship product. Now, the reality is this might cost $2,000 or $10,000 or $100,000 or $500, depending upon, again, who your customer is and what problem you solve. But the reality is less than 10% of your customers are actually ever going to buy your flagship product in most businesses. And that's okay. For every other customer, it gives them something to aspire to. By just having that product available, you're communicating to them, this is what we're working towards. And so you're casting vision. Now, the continuity product is the glue that holds your business together. This is the subscription product or the membership where people are paying month after month to get access to your products or services and where along the way, they're paying some sort of fee on a monthly basis usually. And so this could be a membership site, like I mentioned, could be a subscription box, a software. Uh, but the goal is this is the glue that keeps people connected to your customers where you're solving some sort of problem or problems for them on a regular ongoing basis and they're giving you a regular ongoing fee in return. And it helps to have that recurring revenue, you know? Definitely. Um, because it's much less costly to hold on to those repeat customers or those continuity customers than it is to keep trying to get new customers. John Warlow calls them the automatic customer because every month they don't have to wake up and say, should I buy from him again? It happens automatically. Automatic customer. I love that term. I haven't heard it yet, but I love it. So when I think of those 
products right there. I see that a lot online, uh, whether it's with individual thought leaders or other online businesses. But I'm curious, would this model work for any type of business, digital or brick and mortar? Uh, Yes, is the first answer. The second thing I would say is that it's actually, that's where a lot of the stuff I learned is running online businesses. But the benefit of online businesses is you can test a lot of things very cheaply, very quickly. That's where you get a lot of these concepts is where people with an online business can, you know, tweak their sales page or which products they have featured and start to see what what works well, what doesn't work well and tweak it. It could be a lot more expensive to like A-B split test in a restaurant or a boutique or any kind of brick and mortar website. And so I like to think that's one of the reasons why a lot of brick and mortar businesses haven't picked up on this model. But I think the second reason why is the fact that up until recently, this wasn't important or necessary because up until recently, the way you succeeded in business was you had the goods, you had the supply. We were a supply-based economy. You went to a bookstore because you wanted to get access to books. Now, if you want to get access to books, you just open your phone. You have access to all the books in the world. And so you don't need to go to a bookstore to get access to the supply. The only reason why you would go is if, uh, well, I guess there's a few reasons. One might be maybe you need a book today and you can't wait for two hours shipping or 24 uh, hours shipping. But the second reason would be is if you wanted to know what books that bookstore recommended. And so the, the purpose of brick and mortar has changed. And a lot of brick and mortar businesses haven't adopted. So a lot of boutiques just have a bunch of clothes because not too long ago, even just 10 years ago, if you wanted to buy clothes, you had to go to a clothes store. Well, now JCPenney just closed their last location in Tennessee, I think, or at least the one only one I know about. And they're an example of where they owned that market for a long time and they haven't adapted. They're still based on this supply-based economy where they think, well, we have the clothes. Don't you want them? Well, yeah, but I have access to all the clothes in the world on my phone. So that's one reason why I think a lot of businesses haven't made the shift. But if you were a brick-and-mortar business and you wanted to make this shift, I make the dangerous uh, pursuit of using a women's boutique as an example in the book of how they would apply (laughs) this, which is risky because I do not shop at women's boutique. But there is one outside of my window, and I was feeling inspired that day. So that's what's in the book. So, for example, if I own a women's boutique, the gateway product might be, now depending upon, you have to back up and say, okay, who are your real people? Well, if I own a women's boutique, and let's just say, for example, that I was focusing on helping uh, working women feel confident in the workplace, and that was really the problem that I was solving. Well, let's just kind of jump down into the products. The gateway product might be that at the front of my store, I would feature a shoe, a specific pair of shoes that are both comfortable and classy and can go with almost any outfit. Now, that's something that someone might pay, you know, depending upon the price point, let's just say $50 to $100 for the gateway product, where that's actually a painless purchase when it comes to shoes. I mean, those for women's shoes are ridiculously expensive. I looked this up later and found out that all of my prices were out of touch. But if that if that pair of shoes are the front and you just position it so the minute somebody walks in the door, they can see this is where you start. And you see this and it's just, you could literally just call it our favorite pair of shoes. They're comfy, they're classy, and they go with almost any outfit. That communicates to someone walking in the door that if they're just on the fence about becoming a customer, they're like, well, you just made this easy for me. I'm going to try your favorite pair of shoes because that tells me whether or not I can trust your opinion. Now, while you're there, there, they might still be looking at the racks of different clothes that you offer, but they find out, they say, hey, I noticed that you have this uh, sign behind the register about the... Uh, the working woman's wardrobe, what's that? And they say, oh, well, that's our flagship product. 
where for $2,500, you can have a three-hour session with a stylist on our team who will help you design a capsule wardrobe to, that includes the clothing, by the way, that design a capsule wardrobe that allows you to mix and match different pieces to look great and to feel confident in the workplace. And you say, oh my gosh, that sounds like a lot of money, but now that I think about it, I've probably spent a lot of money on clothes that I didn't like. And I've always wanted to have a stylist actually tell me what to do. Maybe I buy it, maybe I don't. But either way, it's something to aspire to, right? Something right. to look, It's something to aspire to. And so even if I go buy two other products, maybe I buy a dress and a, and a blouse where I'm spending a couple hundred dollars, that still actually sounds cheap compared to the 2,500. So you just done some price anchoring for me. But the continuity product is that maybe you go out and start surveying your customers and find out what do they like or not like about their clothes? Why don't they feel confident in the workplace with their wardrobe? Why don't they feel confident with their wardrobe? And I have a list of reasons that come up in my book as far as why that might be. But you know, some of it has to be do with just feeling comfortable, you know, not too hot, not too cold, those kind of things. Well, what if your continuity product was a seasonal refresh? So for anybody who goes through the working woman's wardrobe, the full product, you say, oh, by the way, come back, come back every three months. And for $1,000, we have a wardrobe refresh where we do the same thing we just did, except for it's a lot cheaper, actually. And what we do is we go through your wardrobe and we swap out things like in the summer, we swap out sweaters for lighter tops. And we, we swap out your wardrobe to make sure that it's, it's up to date with the season and that you feel comfortable and confident in it. I mean, I don't buy women's clothing. So you tell me, Matt, not to it's say okay. that you buy women's clothing, but, no, but I, I mean, doesn't that sound like a much simpler way to buy products than just walking into a store filled with shelves and kind of just like scratching your head? It really does. And it goes back to what we talked about earlier around clarity. And it provides clarity to the customer, but also it's, to, to me, it provides clarity to the boutique shop owner as well, because yeah. they can gauge, okay, these are the number of people that are buying my favorite shoes, the gateway product. These are the number of people that are going through the seasonal refresh. They're able to yep, yep. much better gauge and forecast their financial performance based on that. Yeah. Well, and actually, just to kind of like finalize that example, they still can have other products on the shelves, right? I mean, that would be expected, I think. But the of point course. is, if you have these three core products in place, it, it, those become the anchor for everything else. And so everything else yeah. is either like an, 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 a supplementary product or a complementary product to one of those three core products, now all of a sudden it makes sense to customers. That's it. And it's providing that clarity. And it think that helps to keep loyal customers as well. Even if you don't have customers that are going into that continuity product, the seasonal refresh, or mm -hmm. the customers that are continually going for the flagship product, all those things in place, I think, help keep the customer coming back. Exactly. So John, you and I talked about this a few weeks ago and boutiques like this, small businesses like this are hurting right now due to what people mm -hmm. are calling the great resignation. And you and I talked about how business leaders can rethink the supply-based nature of mm -hmm. their human resources and become more flexible on using freelancers. Can you explain that? Sure. Well, I, I think that great resignation has been a long time coming because big business has had a monopoly on jobs for a long time. You know, it, it looks that way, but the reality is that more than half of all jobs in the U.S. come from small businesses, and it's true all over the world. So the first thing I would say is that 
But if you look at the common reasons why people are quitting their jobs, it's not actually right now just because they want more money or more benefits, which are kind of like the traditional ways that you would incentivize someone to work for you. It's more that they're looking for freedom, flexibility, opportunity. And that's something that, well, A, you could give that to your employees by encouraging them to have a side hustle or, or a business on the side while they work for you. But secondarily, you can go back to think about your business in terms of what are the specific jobs to be done? What are the specific tasks or skills that you need in your business? And then in, there's a lot of businesses that are making this shift now to saying, look, you know what? Maybe we do want a full-time employee for this role, but actually... If we had, instead of a full-time you know, marketing assistant or marketing manager, we could hire a part-time copywriter as a contractor, as a freelancer, and we can hire a part-time social media manager as a freelancer, and we can actually get better work from each of them. And it's going to be the cost, the same cost as what it meant for one full-time employee. Now, the shift to the, the gig economy or the freelancer economy, again, that's one of those things that's been happening for a long time behind the scenes, but just dramatically shifted you know, with the Great Reset. And uh, in 2020, but back in 2018, we already crossed the point where 50% of all college graduates were going directly into 1099 work instead of W2 work, which in the U.S. are legal terms. But really, what I mean is there was about 50/50 going into a full-time job out of college versus going into a job where they were self-employed and invoicing people for their time or work or services. So. I think that now that's only increased. And so I think we'll continue to see the shift towards reply, relying more on collaboration with freelancers than having to have every role be filled by a full-time employee. Um, and I think that that reflects really just everyday people's desire for freedom and flexibility that you can get as a freelancer that you can't get as an employee. Yeah. And I think business leaders need to better understand that and be able to embrace that and find yeah. that they're likely able to get more work done or more effective work done at either a lower cost or the same cost while they still allow for flexibility of their people and those people being freelancers. Yeah, exactly. John, last question for you. If you were to create a five-song soundtrack for Survive and Thrive, what songs would you include? Oh, I'll have to pull it up. We were just talking about this beforehand, but I didn't have it open in front of me. But I actually, so it's funny, we were talking about this beforehand yeah. and I um, I don't, and I know this is these are the best songs to listen to while you're reading the book. But while I was writing the book, I had a hype playlist where I would literally listen to this on my way to write to just kind of like get energetic and hyped up and excited. Nice. Um, and so do you want me to tell you the name of those five songs? Oh, please. Yes. Okay. Uh, so the first is hashtag hustle by Matt Giafani. Gia, mm, yep, Matt by Matt mm-hmm. Giafani. I think is his last name. Um, but it's just a funny song about online entrepreneurs. Uh, you probably heard the song Billionaire, as in I want to be a billionaire. I yeah. personally like the Glee cast version. I must admit, so that's what I listen to. And then you're, you might be sending a theme here. All I do is win by DJ Khaled, featuring T Pain, Ludacris, Snoop Dogg, etc. Uh, and then Starships. I like the Pentatonix version personally. All right. The last song is called Zombie Swear Award. by Weezer. And it's actually a new Weezer song, which is yeah. a thing. I don't know if you knew that Weezer still makes songs, but oh um, yeah. Uh, but it's a it's a hilarious song. And so, anyways, those five songs, I would just listen to those as I was getting pumped up and ready to write. And it's great energy. So feel free to listen to those. Let me know what you think of what that says about my character, I suppose. But um, 
uh, <laughs> but yeah, those are those, they're more of like the thrive side rather than the survive side of the title. Well, that's good. I mean, because ideally we want to be focusing on thriving versus just simply surviving. But I love that. I love how you shared really the behind the scenes on your book. These were your hype songs, the songs that you wrote to get you started to write. Yeah, exactly. Love it. All right, John, where can people go to learn more from you? The best place is just to go to surviveandthrivebook.com. You'll find, of course, links there where you can get a copy of my new book, Survive and Thrive, How to Build a Profitable Business in the Economy, including this one. But you'll also get, uh, you can download the playbook for free that we talked about today. Uh, And of course, you'll also see links there to my Thrive School podcast um, and any other way you want to connect. Excellent. Love it. John, great seeing you. Great talking with you. Thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, you got it. It's my pleasure. Thank you. And keep up the good work. I hope you enjoyed my discussion with John Meese. So go ahead and check out his book, Survive and Thrive. And while you're in your podcast player, be sure to check out his podcast, The Thrive School Podcast. And if you're enjoying the Simple Brand Podcast, go ahead and hit the subscribe button. It's going to make it so much simpler for you to get future episodes like the next one featuring Christy Wright. Christy is a number one national best-selling author. She's a personal development expert, and she's the host of The Christy Wright Show. She's also the founder of Business Boutique, which equips over 40,000 women business owners to make money doing the work that they love. Christy and I talk about her new book that comes out next week, Take Back Your Time, The Guilt-Free Guide to Life Balance. Hey, it's no secret. So many people are feeling overwhelmed, overcommitted, and out of balance, and it doesn't seem like that's slowing down. Hey, I'm right there with you. Christy and I discuss lessons from her book to help you identify what balance looks like in your specific life. And we uncover the steps to help you focus on what matters most and achieve your own version of balance. So go ahead and subscribe. You'll automatically get Christy's episode as soon as it's live. Until then, keep it simple. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Simple Brand Podcast. Want to make your listening experience simple and automatically receive each new episode? Visit our website, simplebrandpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If you're finding value from the Simple Brand Podcast, leave us a rating or review. That helps us get the show to the ears of the people who need it most. Be sure to catch Matt right here next week. Same Matt time, same Matt channel. Until then, keep it simple.